Not long after the turn of the last century, there was an old missionary couple that was returning to the United States after serving most of their lives in the foreign mission field. It happened that at the same time, then-President Teddy Roosevelt was also returning to the U.S. from one of his famed big-game African safari hunting trips he was so well-known for. Well, there was much excitement on the ship due to the fact that the president was on board, and as they came into port in New York City, the coastline and the docks were crowded with people waiting. The big brass band was there playing, and uh, there was cheers that could be heard even while the ship was still a great way out uh, from the port. And as they came in, the missionary leaned over and he said to his wife, he said, you know, here we've been serving our whole lives in sacrificial, obscure service, going without, laboring for souls, reaching the lost, and now we finally return home and no one even knows who we are. And then the president goes and he shoots elephants for a week in Africa And look at the homecoming that he receives. And his wife grabbed him by the arm, and in the wisdom of her years, she leaned in and she said to him, she said, honey, we're not home yet. It's such a powerful story because it illustrates such an important truth. And that truth is this, is that for the child of God, for the Christian, the born-again believer, this world is not our home, and it never will be. The Apostle Peter said that we, you and I, are aliens and strangers here on this earth. The writer of the letter of Hebrews said that here on earth, we have no continuing city, but we seek one that is yet to come. And the Apostle Paul said to the church in Philippi, he said that our citizenship is in heaven. That is that it's not here on earth, but that it's in heaven. The whole scripture testifies to us of those who willingly renounced their citizenship and allegiance here to this earth so that they could obtain citizenship and the inheritance of that which is to come, what we would call heaven. So the question is, as we consider that, if we think about those that have given it all to serve for that city, that place then that we have not yet seen, then what is it about heaven, our eternal destination and home, that would make someone or people or Christians give their whole lives over for that, something that they have never seen. So I want to talk about that with you this morning. I want to talk about heaven. That is the place that we're going. Now, if you wanted to know something about something, typically what you would do is you would consult your friend, Mr. Google. And you would then seek to find as much information as you could. So you would probably find your way to heaven.com if that existed and that, that was a real way that you could actually find out things about heaven. By the way, it is not. Uh, if, if that website even exists, uh, you, you know, that's not where you get your information. But if it did, and, and in a sense we go to the Bible for our answers, there would probably be a frequently asked question segment of that website where you could go and find answers to the questions you have about what you're waiting for or where it is that you're going. So what does the Bible tell us? Are there answers to our questions about the place that we're going? What can we know about heaven? Now, I learned in the first service that on Sunday mornings, the clock moves more like a fan than it does like a clock. So I've had to condense some of the points, and so we're going to shoot for five in the second service that will hopefully encapsulate uh, all of the seven that, uh, uh, you know, uh, originally we were supposed to go through um, 
So, so we'll uh, look at that this morning and, and see what God has for us. But let me, just before we get into those seven questions, let me dissolve some myths for you. First of all, Peter is not at the gate. He's not there with a podium and a big book, checking if your name is in it to see if you can obtain entrance through the pearly gates. There are no golf carts there, bringing people around to the place where they'll spend their eternity. Morgan Freeman is not there. <laughs> now, he might, he might get there, but he's not going to be there in the context that you're thinking when you laugh about that. The Bible speaks nothing about harps issued to those that inhabit heaven and a cloud that you will sit on for all of eternity. No, you don't get wings, and we will not all just sit around like we're in a beautiful retirement garden painting the landscapes that we see while we're there. The Bible doesn't say anything about those places, but the Bible does tell us certain things. So what does it tell us? Question number one, and if you're taking notes, it's this. The question is, where is heaven? Now, the Bible actually speaks of three different heavens. To be more accurate, you could say that the Bible speaks of heaven in three different contexts. There is the first heaven. The first heaven is just simply this atmosphere, Earth's atmosphere, where we breathe and live and, you know, everything that's tucked inside planet Earth. That's the first heaven. The second heaven, the Bible says, is the universe, contains the galaxies, the solar systems, the stars, the planets. You get the idea that everything contained inside this universe is the second heavens. And then number three, the Bible talks about the third heavens. And that's what we're referring to most of the time when we talk about heaven. You know, the place that we're uh, promised that we're going to go, that Jesus is going to receive us to himself. It is the eternal dwelling place of God. But when I say it like that, it makes it sound like heaven is very far away, doesn't it? I mean, we don't even know where the end of our known universe is. So how could we possibly fathom the place or the presence of heaven where it would be? How does that work? Because scientists tell us that two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And within the realm of our universe and the laws that we are subject to, that is true unless you get on the quantum level, which I don't personally understand. But I could say some things right now that make me sound smart, but I'm not going to do that. But two things can't occupy the same place at the same time. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, the presence of a heaven, the rules might not be the same as that. See, if we, you and I, are subject to all of the laws that encapsulate our universe, that is time, space, and matter, you know, if we're subject to all of that, then if something exists outside of that, by default, it means that that realm would not be subject to our laws, meaning that two things actually can occupy the same place at the same time. What's my point? Why do I get into all that? Here's why. Because I don't think heaven is quite as far away as many of us think that it is. We have the imagery that when we die, we're carried out of our body and we go on this cosmic journey through the you know, atmosphere and then through the space and past the stars, you know, the Star Trek-like translation as we go from here to the outer banks of the universe, so to speak. But in the Bible, that's not the imagery that we get at all. We see Jesus being baptized there in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. We see Jesus at his baptism. It says that while he was standing there on earth, the heavens were opened. That the Spirit of God descended upon him in bodily form like as a dove, and a voice from heaven came and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So what we see is that there was an interaction between heaven and earth experienced by those who were yet still on earth. We see it again at the transfiguration, 
We see it with Elisha, the prophet, at, at Dothan with his servant, when the whole valley and mountain were filled with angels and chariots of fire. We see it with Jacob when he used the rock as a pillow there when he was at Bethel and he dreamed of a ladder and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And he woke and said, surely God is in this place and I knew it not. And we see it with Stephen. Pastor Bobby shared it with us last week from Acts chapter 7 when he was stoned to death, standing yet upon earth, he said with his mouth, he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then he immediately forgave them and gave up his spirit. So what's the point? Here's the point. That heaven's not that far away. In fact, Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. He said, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, if you're using a new King James, you might want to circle that word there for within, and close by it, you would write, in your midst or among, because that's what that word means. Within is kind of a poor translation in the way that it leads us to read that verse, but that's what it means. Not that the kingdom of heaven is within me, like Shirley MacLaine style, you know, like New Age. That's not the idea, but rather it's in my midst, that's what it means, or it's among us. It's what it points to, all those other verses that show that the interaction between heaven and earth is not beyond the borders of the universe, but rather it's among us even right now. I don't know if you've ever been at the bedside passing of a loved one or a friend. I know I have. And there's something interesting that happens there. I've seen it a few times. Perhaps you have too. Is that at that moment of passing, when someone goes from this life into the next, it's almost as though for that split second, while they're still on earth, their eyes are opened, and they see something that was always there that they never knew about. (gasps) And then they pass. I've seen that on many occasions. I see it in the testimony of Scripture. And here's what I believe for you and me. That whether it be by rapture or whether we die, when we pass from this life to the next, our eyes will be opened and we will go, Oh, it was here all along. We were blocked by the limitations of time, space, and matter. We could not see, but it was here. It was among us. So outside the universe, the third heaven, but yet it says that he filleth all in all. He's in our midst. He's in our presence. Where is heaven? Number two, if you're taking uh, notes on this thing. um, Oh, goodness. Oh, here it is. The million-dollar question. You're going to love this one. This is the most frequently asked question about heaven. You ready for it? What does it look like? What does heaven look like? I can feel you moving forward in your seats right now. You're like, oh, this is, this is what it's all about because this is where I make my decision whether or not I really want to go there. Is it actually worth it? Well, listen, the Apostle Paul, thank the Lord, was actually taken there and then brought back to earth and he gives to us the testimony of what he saw when he was there so that we would know what it looks like. The scripture, I've asked you to turn there, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the opening verses of the chapter. And Paul describes that experience for us, and I want to share it with you. In verse 1, Paul says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago Whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now, he's speaking autobiographically. He's talking about himself in the third person. He's the one that experienced it. 
He says, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. And that's the end of his testimony about what he saw while he was in heaven. Here's what happened. Paul's caught up. Most scholars believe that it was Acts chapter 14 after Paul left Lystra, was stoned to death, left for dead outside the city. That it was at that time that this happened. We don't know. That's our best guess. But here's what happens. Paul says, I was there. I saw it. I heard the sound. I experienced the third heaven glory. And then he went like this. And, no, um, it, it, no, the things I, no, listen, a man who was never short for words, a man who could describe the deepest, most incredible truths about God, that could speak of him in ways that no one could ever even imagine when it came to trying to describe what he saw outside and what was awaiting the believer, he said, guess what? No words. Inexpressible. It's unlawful. For me to try to put it in human language would be pure sin because it cannot be done. So what's the point? Here's the point. Save the $20 you were tempted to spend on the book that hits the top 10 bestseller list that I spent seven minutes in heaven or seven hours in heaven. Don't bother. Here's why. Because what the Bible says, well, Paul said it like this. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He said, but it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, if I has seen it, if ear has heard it, If the wildest imagination has thought about it, it's not right. Because no eye has seen, ear heard, or imagination conceived the things that are awaiting us. Now, I have heard of some people on this planet that have wild and incredible imaginations. They have the most scientifically fictitious, you know, visions and images of what things could possibly be like. And sometimes we watch their movies and read their books and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what God says? No, no, no. It's not like that. We can all imagine some pretty wild things. We can imagine some of the scenes that we've seen, imagery that's been given to us. It hits us and we just go, yeah, I understand that. I, 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 I can perceive that. I can see how that would be very much like paradise. I like that, that imagery. But here's the interesting thing. You go to Ezekiel chapter 1. You read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And there is given the description of some of the beings that exist in heaven. Ezekiel describes creatures that have four faces. One of a cow, one of a man, one of a lion. Wings all over their body, eyes everywhere. You know what? When I read that, I go, nope. Can't imagine it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. See, here's the point. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. It is so far beyond anything that we can think, dream up, or comprehend that there is no language in the human realm that can describe it. Everything in the Bible that points us to what is yet to come is described in the context of a shadow. That means this, is that if you're going to compare anything on earth to something in heaven, the best you can do is a shadow. That this is a shadow. We're made in the image of God, but we're a shadow of what is yet to come. A shadow is abstract, it's basically formless, and you're extremely limited in your interpretation of it. So what does heaven look like? We don't really know. Question number three, what is a mansion? I think one of the images that all of us would have concerning heaven is the mansion aspect. Jesus said it. It's John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I am going to prepare a place for you. Probably some of the most comforting words in all of the Bible there spoken by Jesus. Is there a mansion that's awaiting me? He knows me like no one else could know me. He knows what I would want better than I know what I would want. What kind of a mansion would he be providing for me? I remember one of our childhood vacations was to Newport, Rhode Island. And we walked through the mansions that are there along the coastline. And I remember it being absolutely wild, the Rothschild's mansion, seeing the golden handrails and the uh, mural-clad ceilings and marble dining rooms and going through those rooms. And it's just like, this is unbelievable to think that someone could live in something like this. And I remember vividly that one of the tour guides turned to my mother on this one particular time and he said to her, he said, hey, how would you like to have a house like this? But more amazing to me was my mom's response. She looked and she said, no thanks. And everybody kind of went, huh? And she said, I'd have to clean it, you know. (laughs) The question is, is a heavenly mansion, does it fit into our concept or our idea or our imagery of what a mansion is? I suggest to you that it is not what we think at all. Jesus said he's preparing a place, it's mansion-like in its appeal and its draw. But what does that mean? Turn to 2 Corinthians. You're already in chapter 12, but go back to chapter 5 and listen to what Paul says again. Because Paul and then Peter, a little bit later, shed some insight into us on this. What's a mansion? What is it? Chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, that's eternal in the heavens. Now, when you look at verse 6, you're going to realize that he's talking about, when he talks about his house, his tent, that he's talking about his body. Did you know that your body, the physical you that you can touch and that you dress up in the mirror every morning, is nothing more than a house that carries your spirit and your soul, the invisible expression of who you are? Your body is nothing more than a medium through which you express yourself to this world in this dimension that we live within. That's what your body is. But someday your body's going to get old, it's going to shrivel up, and it's no longer going to be able to express the you that inhabits the physical you. Do you understand? And that day, that body's going to die. Well, here's what Jesus was teaching, what Paul is demonstrating, illustrating, is that at that moment that you check out of this tent, this frail, temporary, corrupted flesh that is dying day by day, that God has prepared for you in heaven a new body. And the difference between the body that you inhabit now and the body that you will possess then is the difference between what we would think of as a tent and a mansion. Think about it. Peter goes on. You can turn later to 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15. Peter uses the same language to describe his passing. I'm going to put away this tent. But what is a tent? A tent is small. It's weak. It's unstable. It's vulnerable to weather and penetrations. It's temporary, and it wears out quickly. It's a mobile home. It's not something that you would want to live in for any extended period of time. Just like many of us, I don't want to be in this body for all of eternity. It just doesn't do justice to what I've been created to be and been created to do. But Jesus said there's a mansion that's being prepared. A glorified body. It will never die. It never wears out. It doesn't need sleep. It doesn't need food, but it will get it. It's kind of best of both worlds. 
It's not limited to the laws of time, space, and matter that we are now. It is a glorified body, a house not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens. Now, you can write, email, you can talk, come to me after and say, hey, are you sure about the mansion thing? Listen, if we get to heaven and we get mansions, I'm happy. I'm good. I'm good with that. But I really believe the scripture teaches that what we think of as the big house with the crystal doors and, you know, the, the, the glorified bathroom and all the rest. You know, listen, if we don't sleep, why do we need houses? We eat at his table. You know, if we need them, we'll have them. But I think he's talking about the body that we will receive in heaven. Question uh, number four out of five um, this morning is, is a big one. And, and this is where I want to spend, this and the last one is where I want to spend the, the most of our time. And that's uh, this one. It's what will we do there? Do we get the harp? Do we sit on a cloud? Is it eternal rest? Because I'm a doer. I'm not very good at resting. I don't like resting. Resting drives me crazy. I love having things to do. So is heaven just a place where we do absolutely nothing? Well, here's what we know. We know that in heaven there are cities, there are responsibilities, there is an economy, there are relationships, and there is order, positions, rank, and role. And here's what you need to know, is that what we are and what we do in that kingdom that's to come is determined by who we are and what we do with our time here on earth. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, that famous classic sermon right at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel that is almost like Christianity 101. You get saved, you start reading the New Testament, you catch the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was very clear. He said, you can have your reward here on earth, or you can defer and you can send it ahead and you can have it when you get to heaven. But you can't have both. Which means that there's a potential for me to have more or less when I get to heaven. The Apostle Paul said it like this. He said that the foundation of our salvation is Jesus Christ. That is that we are saved not by what we do, but by what he did on the cross and our choice to put our faith in him and be forgiven of our sins. And that is our salvation. Not us, him. You're given that salvation. But, Paul went on to say, what you do with that then is going to determine how great you are, your reward structure, and how well you'll be able to enjoy or have the capacity to enjoy what is to come in the kingdom that's to be. He said, if you build on your salvation with wood, hay, or stubble, then those things are going to be burned up and you're going to lose your reward. You'll enter into heaven because of Jesus, but you'll get there with nothing. He said, or you could have gold, silver, and precious stones. You could build with those things. And if you do, then your reward will be great and you'll, your capacity to enjoy heaven will go further. You say, give me more scripture on that. I'm not sold yet. It's Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Jesus, in that passage, said this. And I'm going to read the first couple of verses and you'll know the story and you can read the rest on your own later for time's sake. But Jesus said this, Matthew 25, verse 14. He said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. And to another, one. To each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now pause right there. Jesus says this. He says, I'm going away, basically. And he said, in doing so, I'm going to establish my church. And in my church, it's going to be made up of people. And I am going to deliver to every person who puts their faith in me 
a certain trust. Depending on your ability, depending on who you are and what God created you for, some he will give more, others he will give less. No one will he give nothing, and everyone will have the ability to do the most with what they have. That's the context of Jesus' parable. And so he goes on the journey, and then he returns, and he says, hey, how did you do with what you had? This is what goes on in the text. And it says that the person that had the five said, Lord, I used the five, I made five more. The person with the two said, Lord, I used the two, I gained two more. But there was one person who buried it, did nothing with it. And Jesus' reply to that person was less than flattering, you know. But here's the point, is that God has given to every one of us substance. Talents, in this context, was a measurement of money. But we can use it in our own definition of that same word, talents. God's given you gifts. Every one of you has supernatural abilities to be a witness and an example for God's kingdom in a way that no one else can. God's given you that gift, that ability. And for some of us, he's given us many ways and many opportunities. Those things can be our talents, you know, quote unquote, our gifts. Some of it is our resources. Some of it is our sphere of influence. A lot of it is our Bible knowledge, how much of the Bible we've been able to learn through our access to the scriptures and our ability then to, uh, to give that away to others. And so there's all of these things that God gives to us. And here's what Jesus is teaching. He's saying how you invest those things to the furtherance of God's kingdom is going to then determine your place, your position, your ability and capacity to enjoy the kingdom that is yet to come. You say, wait a minute, are you saying that in heaven there's actually going to be people that are above other people? I mean, part of my hope for heaven is that that part's all done. You know, I don't like saying boss or sir, you know, what are you saying? Is that really the way it is? Yeah, that's the way it is. In heaven, everyone, listen to me, everyone is full. There's no one in heaven that's saying, oh, I wish I had what they had and I'm hungry for more. No, you're going to be completely, totally full when you get to heaven. But here's the difference. Some of us are just going to be little communion cups. Full all the way to the capacity. You can't pour anything else in. It's totally satisfied, but it's just a communion cup. And others will be swimming pools. Both things can be full, but absolutely, one has the ability to carry more than the other. I'll illustrate it this way. A couple of uh, months ago, I was in the warehouse outlet, you know, the place where you can buy very cheap Chinese goods. And I was going through there, and something caught my eye. It was the full first season set DVD of He-Man, Masters of the Universe. And when I saw that, it immediately took me back to that part of my life. A five-year-old, a kindergartner, with a bowl of Captain Crunch, sitting in front of the TV, watching He-Man and Battle Cat, taking down Skeletor and going after all the evil in the world. And, and man, that part of my life, He-Man was everything. I had figurines, I had the Castle of Skull. I mean, it was awesome. And we would play, we would ride the motorized flying go-kart. And, you know, we did everything. It was like, this is glory, you know. And I was satisfied, I was full. So walking through the warehouse outlet, I saw that, and I was immediately taken back there in my mind, like, oh, the glory days. So I sprang for it, six bucks. <laughs> and I bought the DVDs, and I brought them home, and I showed Georgia, and I relived that, that moment, those moments. And then I sat down on the couch, put the kids to bed, and I popped in the DVD. And I watched it for about ten minutes. You know what I said? This is stupid. <laughs> I don't think I made it through one whole episode. I was like, man, we've come a long way with effects and, you know, animation and whatnot, you know. But, but, but here's the point, is that then my capacity 
to enjoy life was very, very small. I could be satisfied with very, very little. But now, that doesn't do it for me. There's bigger, there's better things. And the same thing is true for you and me. There are some, you'll get to heaven. You've done very little with what you've had. You haven't invested your gifts. You haven't taken advantage of your opportunity to know God's word, his scriptures, his wisdom, his ways, his heart, and his person. And you'll get to heaven because you've put your faith in Jesus and he will welcome you with loving arms. But your ability to invest in his kingdom and in your place there will be through and you no longer will be able to do that. And you'll say, oh man, I wasted so much time. And there'll be others. Hey, every one of us, I think, will have those regrets and those immediate moments when we realize what little we did with the opportunity and the resources that we had. But Jesus teaches that there are crowns and things to enjoy in his kingdom to come. There are two people in the Bible that uh, are an example to us of living a heavenly life. And both of them had seen heaven. Number one was obviously Jesus. You know, he was there in the beginning with the Father, and he had seen heaven and was on earth. And the other one was Paul, who we talked about earlier, who had seen that vision of heaven. Both of them had seen a vision of heaven. And think about for a minute the way that they lived their lives in light of having that knowledge and that understanding. One of the verses that haunts me the most in the Bible is John chapter 17, verse 5. It's when Jesus was praying to his Father just prior to the cross. And he says to his Father, he says, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And then he says this, and this is the thing that drove Jesus to do everything that he did on planet Earth. And he said this, he said, Now, Father... Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. That is what drove our Savior. He knew what was yet to come, and he lived every day of his life with that in his eyesight, that that's what I want to live for. The other was the Apostle Paul. Paul saw a glimpse of heaven. Again, I told you before, most likely it was Acts 14 when he was stoned and left for dead outside the city of Lystra. If that was when Paul saw his vision of heaven, it would be fitting because of what happened right after he got up from that experience. The Bible tells us that they stoned him, that he was bloodied, that he was unconscious, that he was left for dead, but that when he arose from that stoning, it says that he turned, he set his face towards the city, and he walked back in. And he kept doing what he had been doing before. He saw something and he said, you know what, it's worth it. That no matter what this life can throw at me in terms of suffering or persecutions or circumstances or anything else, anything that I do in his name is going to be worth it. That's what it's all about. And so we will be there. We don't know exactly what that means. A city, a crown, responsibilities, economy, role. We don't know. But here's what we do know. It's worth it. It's worth it. And what we do with our lives now will determine what we do for all of eternity then. Question number five in our final one as we draw close to a close. I think that this is number five because um, it's the least frequently asked question. Um, it is a question that people ask, but it's not asked frequently enough. And usually the answer to it is typically just assumed, and that's why people don't ask. And here's the question, is who has citizenship there? Who obtains citizenship in heaven? The answer for us right from the Bible is in Revelation chapter 21. You should have a finger or a bookmark there. But in verse 24, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, says this, speaking about heaven. 
He says, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here's the answer to the question of who has citizenship in heaven. The answer is this. Those who have renounced their citizenship to this world, its ways, its code, its master, its destiny, and have become citizens in heaven by entering into blood covenant with God, having their names written in the Lamb's book of life. So how does that happen? How does a person translate their citizenship and their allegiance from this earth to the kingdom that is yet to come? Again, we look at scripture for our answer. It's Jesus, well, it's the gospel, John chapter 1, verse 12. Again, the apostle John says this. He says, this is how. He says, to as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave power to become the children of God or the authority to become his sons and daughters. That's what it is. It's receiving him. It's not believing primarily, which is part of receiving is believing, but James says that even the devils believe and they tremble. But once you've believed, it means that you receive. You're not receiving religion, you're receiving Jesus. Well, how does that happen? I mean, I hear what you're saying, we receive, but how does a person receive? Well, first of all, you've got to recognize that you're a sinner. And as a sinner, you're a citizen of this world, its ways. You're a part of this world's population and you're you're subject to its code and you're unable to separate yourself from your citizenship and your allegiance here. That's what sin does. And so you come to the recognition that you are, like the Bible says, alienated or separated from the life of God. And that's why when your head hits the pillow at night, you, you don't know where you come from or where you're going. You don't know how the circumstances of your life are going to come out. And there is no one in control except for you. And you don't know how to control those things. And so there's an absence of peace. There's an anxiety that fills you and floods you. There's a constant question mark about origins and destinies and circumstances and how it's all going to work out. And the reason for that is because the Bible says that you are in darkness and you don't have the light of light. And so therefore, it means that you need a Savior. Because you can't set yourself free from that condition and you can't do anything about the condition that sin has brought to you. And so therefore, you need someone who can help you. And that's what God provided. See, your sin and my sin, I'm not speaking to you as one who's not a sinner. Our sin separated us from God and it carries a cost. In order for that sin to be put away and that separation to be bridged, the price has to be paid. And the Bible says that it has to be paid in blood. And that blood ultimately comes down to one of two things. It's either going to be a substitute Someone who could live a sinless life, walking every day in this world without ever having a sinful thought or doing a sinful deed. They live in absolute perfection for their whole life, thereby they earn the right to go to heaven through their behavior. That person that did that would have to be willing to trade places with you. Hey, are you a sinner? Oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Have you sinned? Yeah, I've sinned. Are you going to have to give account for some things that you don't really want to give account for? Yeah, I'm going to have to give account for a few things that I don't want to give account for. How about you? Nope, never sinned. Really? Yeah, never. 
your whole, is that sin? You're telling me you've never sinned. Are you lying? I'm Never sinned? No, never sinned. Not a day in my life. Not in my thought life. Not in my action life. Not in anything. Never sinned. Really? So you get to go to heaven. That's right. I get to go to heaven. I'm at one with God. So how could I, do you think, would you, you want to trade? I mean, I've got this sin card, and you could trade this in for the wrath of God. And you could give me your sinless card, and I'll go to heaven for you. What do you think? Good luck finding that person. In fact, the Bible says that person doesn't exist. I'm sorry, I hate to shatter the imagery of your saintly grandmother, but the Bible says this. <laughs> Listen, your saintly grandmother would not have traded that card to you, I'm telling you. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So you either live a perfect life, or you find someone who lived a sinless life. That's what God provided. He became a man, and he walked this world as a man. Fully God, fully man. He lived every day of his life in absolute sinless dependence upon his father. Never once walking outside the boundaries, doing only those things which please his father. And then, purchasing heaven through his obedient life as a man, he absorbed the sinner's penalty. That's what took place upon the cross. That in the whip of every blow of the flagellum, the rod that beat him, the thorns that pressed into his head, the nails that went through his hand and his feet, the agony that he felt being separated from his father as it says that he sweat great, great drops of blood because of what he was going through, he didn't do it for himself. He did it because there was a world that was filled with sinful people that were perishing in their sins, living their lives in darkness, and that needed a savior. And so he willingly gave his life to be that sin substitute, and then he rose again, which was the seal that he had actually lived a sinless life. Because if there's no sin, there's no death. Death is the result of sin. He was sinless. The seal that his offering was sufficient was the fact that he rose again from the dead. And here's what he now does. He offers citizenship to any sinner that will come to him and say, I'm in darkness. And I believe in who you are and who the Bible says that you are. And I'm willing to make that trade, your life for mine, your blood for my filth. I come humbly, I come honestly, I'm coming. And here's what happens once you do that. The Bible says your citizenship translates. Your allegiance to this world is broken. The power that this world has over you is broken. Your master that the Bible says is Satan who governs the children of this world, that allegiance is broken and you are translated into citizenship in the kingdom of his son. Your name is written in what John called the Lamb's book of life. And you become fully, what's the word? A citizen of heaven. You are in completely. Now listen, he doesn't say you will be citizens, that when you die, you'll trade in your card. No, no, no. You are, at that point, a citizen of heaven, which means a couple of things. It means that he is your king now. It means that you're under his influence now. It means that he's your Lord and his code of ethics is now your code of ethics. But it also means this. It means that you are privileged to receive all of the resources that that kingdom affords. His access, his presence. You can talk to the Father. You can receive of him. His power becomes your power at work in your life. And you become a full citizen, a child of the king. It's all yours. And furthermore, we hold the highest 
place within that kingdom because the Bible says that we are in Christ. We've taken his place, not just the generic place of an angel, but we've been placed in Christ in that he was the one that substituted his life for ours. We're brought very near to him. We're going to take communion this morning and the men can begin to hand out the elements and the worship team can come. I want to let that thought germinate in your mind a little bit as we prepare our hearts to take communion this morning because what we're celebrating right now is what he did for us so that we could go to his kingdom. Not maybe, but absolutely. Father, we just thank you this morning for the privilege of uncovering the truth that you place within your word. We believe, Lord, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart could even imagine the things that await. We also believe, Lord, that you will be the supreme affection of heaven. That regardless of what we see or what we do, or what is to be experienced, you are the glory of heaven. And now as we prepare our hearts to take this communion, Lord, we ask that you would uncover, open up our eyes that we might fully understand what you've done for us. May it be new, may it be fresh, may it be real to us. In Jesus' name.
Everything that Jesus existed for on this earth when he was here at this time was boiling down to the night that he was betrayed. He said, with great desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you as he looked around the table and he saw the 11 there that he had chosen, the 12. And it says that in the presence of them all, with that as the mindset, the attitude of the night, it says that he took bread and it says that he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them and then he told them what it signified. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Now we've heard those words probably most of us a thousand times. But I think one of the most profound things that it says in that passage, it says that he gave thanks. The taking the bread, knowing what it represented, knowing everything that he was about to endure and go through for them, the beating, the blood, the nails, the sorrow, the pain, he gave thanks. Why? Not because he was going to enjoy the pain or enjoy the experience of going through that cross experience, but it was because of what he was going to get on the other side. That there's no other way for these people to be redeemed to me because of the great love that Jesus had, not just for those 12 that were sitting there, but for the faces of you that he saw into the future here. I'm doing it for them. And I thank you, Father that you've made a way for them to be one with me, to be in my kingdom where I am. And so he broke it, he gave it, and then he said this, receive it. And so in remembrance of what he did for us this morning, we take of the body together and we remember what Jesus did for us. It says that after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant that's in my blood. Shed for you. And then he said, drink it. Receive it. Leviticus chapter 17 tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. The blood that that cup signified represented the very life of Christ himself. This is my life, he was saying to them essentially. The perfect life. Sinless blood, the most powerful and pure substance that exists in all of existence, this universe or beyond. And he said, I freely give this to you. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus was willing that his blood would be shed so that our sins could be remitted, forgiven, freed. And so he handed them the cup as he does to us this morning. And he says, I've freely given this for you. Now receive it and do this in remembrance of me that you never lose the awe and wonder of how much I love you and what I've done for you. And so we together this morning receive of the cup signifying his blood shed for us. Father, we thank you so much for what you did for us. We thank you that not only did you die, only did you forgive all of our sins but you're preparing a place for us and that hope of heaven it moves us Lord the thought that this world is not it that our citizenship is already secure somewhere else oh Lord it lifts us it gives us hope 
Father, we pray that you would send us forth with purpose. We pray that you would take the words that we heard this morning and that they would give new life into what we're doing on this planet. That you would help us to see our lives in light of the things that we heard. And that this wouldn't just be information or a comforting word, but that it would change the way that we walk, the way that we live. So, Father, we thank you so much for this. You're the one who did all things. All things are of you, through you, and for you, for your name. And we give you so much thanks, Lord. Hey, before I say amen, the Bible says that unless your name is written in that book, that you have no place in him. The Bible says that your citizenship must transfer from this world and what it is, its master, its code, its allegiance, into his glorious kingdom that's eternal and never fades. That if your name is not written in that book, that you have no hope for him, no hope for heaven. But the Bible says that if your name is written in that book, that you can have assurance and you can know that you're going to heaven. And when your name is written in the book, you know it's written in the book because the lights are on in your life. There's a new something that happens inside. When your head hits the pillow at night, it's no longer a question of anxiety and doubt and what is to be and how is this going to work out, but rather, you know that he's sovereign, that he is Lord, that he's in control. The chains that held you in the sins that bound you in this life, that destroyed everything that there was, those chains are broken and his freedom is felt and experienced. The lies that this world propagates are immediately disbanded. They're exposed for what they are. And the truth of who he is and what the world is all about is open to you as his spirit begins to live inside of you and work Jesus in as he works the world out. The Bible talks about the supernatural power of his spirit, but it's not yours unless you're his. Maybe this morning you're sitting there and you say, oh, I'm not his. I need to be his. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. I know it's late, but this is second service, and trust me, it's worth it. You're here this morning. You say, I need heaven. I need Jesus. This is my day. Here's what you do. They're going to sing that last chorus one more time. Lead me to the cross. And that's your opportunity to say, Jesus, I recognize that the ball is in my court. You paid the price. You're handing out to me a free salvation card. And this morning, I choose to take it. And here's how you do it. You stand up. I want you to come forward stand right here in the front of the church. By doing that, you're making a proclamation publicly to him saying, Jesus, I want to be yours. I want your kingdom to come. I want to live as a child of light. You're not joining church. You're not coming to religion. You're not accepting something that you're going to sign up for. You're coming to Jesus Christ, which is the very reason why God put you on this earth, was to know him. And this is a chance for you to do that. While we sing the song, the people here are going to be praying for you. I'm going to be praying. I know it's a battle, but today you know this is the day God's calling you right now. So they're going to sing, we're going to pray, and I want you to come forward. Go ahead. You come. Come forward. Lead me to the cross where your
like this in the Northeast, but we're not talking about the Northeast. We're talking about the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that there is a battle for your soul, that right now the prince of darkness would love to keep you bound in your seat, to keep you from coming to Christ, that he can continue to blind you and, and lead you in his will and destroy your life. And you know you should be up here right now. We'll wait for you. We'll give you another second to come forward. I know that you're there. Jesus wants to free you today. Come. Is there anyone else? Come. Amen. to God. It's come. It's my words given to you, but you're talking to God. And the Bible says you're, you're just going to confess him as Savior. And as from doing this, according to the Bible, your name is going to translate from the Prince of Darkness to the Prince of Light. And you're going to feel God's Spirit come into your life right now. That's what he said. So church, be praying. We'll pray together. Here we go. Lord God, I need you to be my Savior. I confess that I'm a sinner before you and that I need a Savior. Please write my name in your book. Please forgive all of my sins. Thank you for dying for me. I believe that you rose again from the dead. And that you're writing my name in your book. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Let me sense your presence. And from this day forward, let me follow you forever. Thank you for saving me for being my Savior and my friend. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you, God. Listen, we want to give you a Bible. Michael's going to give you a Bible. We're not trying to get you to join anything, but God bless you. Church, let's stand. Give the Lord a praise. Singing your praise as always. And I 